This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan. Malaysia is a capitalist country, but why do some economists say we don't have a cohesive capitalist class? We vote for MPs to sit in parliament, but where else does power reside? What are the competing interests? We often try to understand Malaysian politics by looking at it through the prism of race and religion. But to understand contemporary politics, to understand why Malaysia is the way it is and who holds power in our society, it is more important to look at political economy and how it has evolved over the years. It is important to understand the relationship between the state and the various classes. Jeremy Lim, Secretary of Imagine Malaysia, wrote a paper for the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung titled Malaysia's Incomplete Revolution From Comprador Capitalism to State-Led Development to State-Dependent Development. It's a brilliant paper detailing the shifts in Malaysia's political economy over the decades. Welcome back to the show, Jeremy. Thank you. It's good to be back. You start your paper, which for the record is about the incomplete capitalist revolution, not a socialist revolution, by talking about how Malaysia, much like um, Singapore and Brunei, are some of the few countries in Southeast Asia that has not experienced an armed independent struggle, civil war, or any kind of social revolution. Why is this important to note? Yeah, so, I mean, that's the way I started it because it, it deviates from other political revolutions. Mm-hmm. So, like, the classic case that I cite in the paper is the English Revolution, less well-known. The more well-known one is the French Revolution, the one where um, the French monarch uh, was overthrown. And obviously, it didn't stay that way. They had turbulence, but ultimately, it did transition from one system to another. And this is significant, I guess, in the in the literature because it is a case of moving from feudalism to capitalism. Um, in our case, um, why it is significant that we did not have that armed struggle is because that is often where um, nationalist movements, national liberation movements, so independence movements, um, tend to solidify themselves find a footing to sort of gather the whole country and move towards independence. That gathering didn't happen in the same way because it wasn't an armed struggle. And this is what really sets us apart from countries like Vietnam and Indonesia too, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So after the Japanese were defeated um, and and left Malaysia, the British came back and then we got our independence from the British. Um, This part of the story most people are familiar Mm -hmm. with. I think what people are not familiar with or don't think about too often is that the British in some form controlled the Malaysian economy after they left. Correct. How did they do so? Uh, They did so primarily through their corporations. Um, their, Their soldiers were not here, but their companies remained. This is a language that was, I think, revived to some extent during the Mahathir era, but there was talk of Mm neo-colonialism, a new kind of colonialism, right? Um, So there were plenty of French French African colonies that had also gained formal independence, but the French still controlled much of their economy. They used the same language, neo-colonialism. And so we experienced much of that, even though we didn't have that language yet, where all of the profits were all being sent back to the UK. A very small portion remained behind because all the corporations that controlled 
the tin sector, all of that. Um, there's an interesting study which I cite in the paper um, of the number of like top 100 companies between, I think, 1970 and prior to that. Plenty of that was controlled by the British, up to 80%. Um, and there's one statistic from a book I've read that before the May 13 riots, the British controlled 60% of the economy, the Chinese 30 and the remaining 10 between the Malays, Indians, and the rest. So, a very interesting term you brought up in your paper, Comprador Capitalists. <laughs> what is that, yeah. and who were they made up of? Okay, this is, this is a very interesting one. So, Compradors are basically people who uh, are native, quote-unquote, indigenous to the land, uh, but serve the interests of the colonialists. So, in this case, uh, it was primarily Chinese and to a lesser extent Indian merchants who were doing a lot of the facilitation of trade. So they were num themselves not really producers. Generally, they just facilitated the trade through logistics, warehousing, uh, transportation. Um, but production happened very minimally among these comprador capitalists. Um, and I think in the paper, I say that, you know, if let's say... Um, the British packed up shop and disappeared uh, by magic in maybe 1950, mm -hmm. these comprador capitalists would be left high and dry because their business was to move things for the British and the foreigners. Right. So they wouldn't have a business. I mean, it was in their interest for the British to stick around. So sticking to the point of pre-independence till 1969, you also talk about how we didn't sort of achieve a coherent national capitalist class. Mm. <laughs> what would a coherent national capitalist class look like? Why did we struggle to achieve this? And I guess another question on that will also be, as people um, looking at things from a perspective of working class struggle, class struggle <laughs> sure. and things like that, right. why is it important to talk about national capitalists. Mm, okay, uh, I'll just quickly bring up the example and what I was thinking about when I wrote about that. Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking about India because in India, there are scholars who have written about the emergence of the uh, Indian capitalist class. They were drawn from the professionals. They accumulated capital. Uh, these were lawyers, like law lawyers, doctors who, I mean, through their wages or through just uh, small-time uh, businesses were able to accumulate capital and during the... I think even World War I, these Indian capitalists lent the British money to mm. continue their war effort. They consolidated that much and because the British needed their money, they grew in strength and had the confidence to then push and ask for demands. Right. Um, and the reason this is important is because in the standard kind of Marxist framework, it is capitalists who bring about democracy. Mm -hmm. It's capitalists who need democracy as a system to facilitate the system they want, which is capitalism. Uh, so in the past, and this this is slightly more complicated in the Malaysian scenario because of colonialism, but for instance in France, um, feudalism was uh, ruled by primarily two institutions, the monarchy and the and the nobility, the, the feudal lords, right? These feudal lords uh, were given the land by the monarchy to rule over and to extract uh, profits or excess agricultural production from the people. And so this was the political system at the time. Um, the capitalists who primarily lived in cities were beginning to grow their business and had an interest in sort of removing or displacing these feudal lords as the, as the next set of ruling elite. And the system they would have chosen 
is usually more expedient is is democracy. And democracy doesn't have the people power connotation it, it does today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the past, even in the US, for instance, at the point of independence, uh, most elected representatives were all from the landed elite. Um, and so democracy had a very different connotation. Uh, it has morphed over time because of the labor movement, working class movement, people who've died to make sure that laborers had a, had a say in national affairs, they were the ones who brought it up to today. But to follow the general schema, it is the capitalist class. And this is replicated in the case of India. The the merchant classes mm-hmm. and these industrialists had a big role to play in the Indian National Congress. Right. Yeah. And so that's why it is not unimportant because they have an interest in installing this system that is quote unquote free, that allows for free market, supposedly a politics that's also free, with certain rights and freedoms that's guaranteed constitutionally. So this generally came in a package, but it's obviously complicated by many things, Mm -hmm. as we'll see in the case of Malaysia. Absolutely. So another interesting term, um, which I feel people should know, that you repeatedly highlight is independent bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. Now, (laughs) what I find fascinating is that um, why are they positioned as a sort of counter to the elite Mm. rather than an ally? Because when... People <laughs> hear the term bourgeoisie, yeah. they feel that that's an ally to the elite, an, an enemy, so to speak, of yeah. the working class or, mm. or in, in conflict with the working class. Sure. They have interests that are uh, fundamentally different in a way. So right. I mentioned the compradors who are dependent on the colonialists. Uh, in the case of India, uh, I mentioned those industrialists. And those industrialists began to develop sectors that were not dependent on the British. They went into textiles, they went into... Uh, other consumer goods, uh, even some, uh, I don't think they did machines, but they, they had their own industries. And that meant that they were, they were constantly fighting for space. In, the, in, in capitalism, you're fighting for the physical space, uh, the financial space to expand your business. And so in the standard sort of, sort of Marxian framework, it is an independent bourgeoisie that's needed to push through this transition from feudalism to capitalism. If it is still dependent on an old institution, it may happen differently. So just a very quick segue in Mm -hmm. the English Revolution, it wasn't the capitalist overthrew the feudal lords. It didn't happen that way. What happened is over a long period of maybe 150 to 200 years, these two classes began to intermingle such that um, eventually the lords gave up their primary business as collecting rent and transitioned into making stuff. Right. There, there was there, that's a different kind of rev- like that revolution happened in a big bang, but the transition to capitalism happened over a long period rather than through a revolution. Um, and so that's why it's it's significant to think about this independent bourgeoisie as a kind of agent to move you from one stage to another. In the same way that Marx conceptualized the workers to take us from capitalism to socialism, uh, the framework says that cap independent capitalists, independent bourgeoisie are needed to take it from one stage to another. Yeah, in the paper, I mentioned that there isn't one. And mm-hmm. I think uh, I <laughs> I don't think he'll knock me too hard. But yeah, I remember hearing at a speech that Jomo says that Malaysia doesn't have a capitalist class. And that was quite a quite an interesting statement to think about. Right, it is. Yeah, and I think he means this independent bourgeoisie. Yeah. So I think it is impossible to understand Malaysian politics a Malaysian political economy without 
looking at AMNO because mm. they have been the longest uh, running. Um, pa- ruling party in Malaysia um, alongside Barisan National. Of course, they are no longer the key people in power right now, but for a long time they were. Could you unpack the origins of AMNO? And I'm particularly interested, not necessarily how they came to be, but what's their DNA from a class prism? How do mm. you analyze that? Yeah, so people who are not familiar with academic scholarship um, would, I think still be able to see Amno's elite character. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it drew from many classes. Amno wasn't one thing. And Amno, if you, if you read traditionalism, it looks at how Amno used the notion of tradition, um, preserving uh, Malay kind of feudal and uh, royal culture as a kind of rallying point. Mm-hmm. Because probably in the 1800s, the the Kelantanis and the Johorians from one end to another had probably had very little in common. What, right. what united us was the fact that British conquered us all, made us a, made us an entity, and then they had to cobble together an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the need to cobble to this, together this identity meant that these people were drawn from various classes. The point the paper makes is that who the party might have been made up of many classes, including farmers, teachers, fishermen, but who were the leaders, mm. right? And the leaders were drawn from the aristocracy and what I mentioned a lot, the petty bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie generally just, in French, just means people who dwell in the cities, but it's taken on a different connotation. It's, it's, uh, it means a certain kind of elite, mm-hmm. generally refers to the capitalist class. Petty bourgeoisie is just these smaller capitalist classes. Right. Yeah. Do small businesses and all, would you encapsulate that under petty bourgeoisie? To some extent, yes. So like um, AMNO's AMNO's leadership drew drew from landholders, uh, bureaucrats who the British uh, used in the administration and their children because their children, because of their position, would be able to be accorded privileges such as uh, education uh, and and good education, um, and then quick segue about the left of Amno. The left of Amno came from um, slightly humbler beginnings, so mm. people who were teachers, not necessarily bureaucrats themselves, but teachers in many independent struggle played an interesting movement as people who were drawn from the poor, and because of their profession, stayed closer to the poor, mm-hmm. and so those ranks lost out to the more you know, high society types that right. were in Amno. Jeremy, Malaysia had a strong and robust left-wing movement pre-independence and slightly after independence. Um, of course, we had armed resistance groups like PKM, but putting that uh, aside, putting them aside, we had the likes of um, Barisan Socialists, Putra AMCJA, Labour Unions, etc., um, I mean, I recommend checking out Fami Reza Seplo Tahun Seblo Merdeka. How did the various elite forces, both British and local, defeat the left-wing working-class movements? Mm. So, I was actually talking to a friend about this this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it was a variation of things. So, we'll, we'll leave aside the Malayan Communist Party that were right. in the jungle. I think it, at this point, it's, it's more important to focus on um, who they suppressed in the cities, mm-hmm. right? It was, it was the left-wing movements like um, 
Parti Rakyat, Mal- I think it's Parti Rakyat Malaysia or Akatan Pemuda Insaf. So these were left-wing Malay majority movements. That was the Labour Party, Barisan, the Barisan Socialists. So there were very there were various Labour parties. The strategies used against them were obviously sedition. Uh, I mean, and I think sedition is just categorized broadly as anything anti-state. Mm-hmm. If you're against the state, you uh, can be accused of sedition. And so these people were because they were calling for independence. Right. Right. And so anything could be used against them. They were jailed. Uh, they were, if the excuse could be came up, they, they were killed. Um, and people underestimate how powerful jailing a leader can be because it frightens everyone else, not just because it decapitates the head. Um, this was used to great effect by Lee Kuan Yew, Uh, and his allies after he betrayed them. But jailing them, uh, suppressing them, another another really important strategy people should know about is uh, the British basically banned all these left-wing trade unions, independent trade unions specifically, and said, like, we are setting up official unions. You either join us or you are illegal. Hmm. And this meant that it it, it very quickly drained the energy from these independent unions. Nobody would dare to fight and in these and in these sort of official unions they were able to control labor they didn't obviously you know striking they would still try and break but these official unions just became mediating bodies they didn't have the strength to fight for you know better i mean necessarily better wages or that kind of stuff so that's those were the two important strategies that they used one thing I find very important is that our reliance on foreign capital meant that we didn't build our own productive capacity, mm-hmm. something that you highlight in your paper as well. Could you unpack this for me and also explain what is the political repercussions of this? And I want to stress this mm. because sometimes people think that politics and economy are separate. Mm. And I guess <laughs> the politicians play it that way sometimes, but yeah. the reality is different, yep. right? So what is the repercussions of our reliance on foreign capital um, and, and, how did, and, the, and, how, you know, and how it impacted our productive capacity? Mm. So uh, this is where I return to the independent bourgeoisie, uh, where you rightly painted that they are not exactly an ally. But like it or not, the one benefit of having them be in the country to serve a national interest is that capital recirculates in the country. Mm-hmm. It is able to create jobs. Uh, and if the government of the time um, nas- I mean, taps them to head a national industry, you know, the, some, of those ta- some of that taxes gets recirculated rather than all of it heading abroad. And so that's why there are political repercussions for this economic uh, kind of action of sorts. So reliance on foreign capital would mean that, you know, the the ability to create jobs is basically depoliticized. If a foreign country owns most of the profits and are not being reinvested in the country, that means that you have very little control of, you know, what is being generated by the hands of the people in that country. Um, you know, like it or not, like uh, a factory doesn't make money unless there are workers there. Right. And so if most of that profit is heading abroad and being invested in that country or elsewhere, you know, the people who who made the products for that factory are not going to see a majority of its benefits. And it's not just the wages, right? Obviously, I'm sure British companies still paid some wages, right. but there are intangible, intangible benefits because taxes from such an enterprise would be used to fund public services, hospitals, schools, and so on. 
And by having foreign capital be the person to decide where the surplus would go, you are essentially limiting the capacity for a state or a nation to develop other forms of productive capacity. So like, for instance, um, general development paths would be that, you know, you grow your agricultural sector, you tax it, and then you use, it, you use the surplus food and the taxes to feed workers in the city and build new industries. Right. So that you go into steel, you go into chemicals, so that you can make cars, you can make more sophisticated goods and then grow your economy. That is essentially locked off if your if foreign capital owns most of it. And that happened to us. During Tuku Abdul Rahman's time, I mean, he preserved the colonial economy with very minor tweaks. Uh, obviously, state expenditure, how much the government spends did go up, but not by enough to really change the nature of employment. Um, obviously, there, were the, there was the sort of um, very obvious poverty that led up to 1969. Mm-hmm. Those things were all consequences of the colonial economy still being very much in place. On the show with me today is Jeremy Lim, Secretary of Imagine Malaysia. He wrote a paper for the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung titled Malaysia's Incomplete Revolution. We continue our discussion after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Jeremy Lim, Secretary of Imagined Malaysia. And we're talking about how Malaysia's political economy has shifted over the years. This conversation will also be available on podcasts. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on Spotify, the BFM app or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to this on Spotify or even Apple Podcasts, I would really, really appreciate it if you gave us a follow and drop us a review. It would be really, really helpful. As you mentioned earlier, AMNO is not just one homogenous entity, mm-hmm. um, or at least it wasn't. Um, and, and they have gone through various changes over the years. And one of the most incredible, I think, noteworthy shifts that happened was... Tun Abdul Razak's move to oust Tunku Abdul Rahman mm. and the subsequent implementation of the new economic policy. Yep. Talk to me about the period of the 1970s to 1980s. I mean, for the record, like I'm, uh, I'm in favour of this kind of economic nationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in favour of uh, the affirmative action that came with it um, because I think there was a need. Um, and so what my paper suggested this is a, was an attempt at cost correction, mm-hmm. right? In various other countries, I can think about Egypt, um, Iraq, when uh, governments overthrew their comprador elite, or let's say a movement overthrows their comprador elite, they nationalize industries. Uh, they would take over um, various sectors. So in, in our case, uh, we took over, I think, some of the manufacturing sectors, agricultural sectors and at the time already the British was planting right. palm oil and rubber so we took over a good deal of that uh, at, at an increasing pace since since the NEP was installed and that was to be able to have more of the surplus to redistribute to people so that was very much needed to be able to sort of build your national project So the NEP came about after the 1969 racial riots I think when people think about mm. 1969 today, again, their thought is just, okay, this is when that... Mm-hmm. It's again from a racial prism. Obviously, that's very important and it is a racial riot. But I wonder what was that period of 1969? Um, what happened 
to capital, especially the 1969 elections. What was the consequences towards capital, whether it's Chinese capital, Indian capital, Malay capital, whatever it may be? Mm. So the consequences was cap- for capital, uh, we'd have to look at it from a political perspective before mm-hmm. going to back to economics, is that um, the AMNO became an even more senior partner in the, in, in the alliance. Um, the, the old adage before 1969 was politics for Malays, economics for the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And they repeated that phrase. Uh, and I think you can find old MCA documents that have that phrase. So that reconfigured the, the chessboard. Now it would not be this division. Amno would be able... Amno, um, as, the, as the chief partner in the coalition, would be able to take on more economics. Right. In, in order to carry out this redistribution. Mm-hmm. Um, state, ex- like, basically, government expenditure exploded with um, basically nationalizing industries and to create jobs and to hand out welfare were created during that period. That re- reconfigured the chessboard and that brought down a gradual reduction of that 60% foreign capital ownership. Mm. That began to be consolidated more and more in the hands of the state. Um, and to some extent... Uh, that was to the detriment of Chinese capital as well. Obviously, after the racial riots, they had less kind of um, leverage to kind of defend their position. They had to concede a bit, but they didn't, at the time, they didn't think they were conceding a lot. Mm-hmm. This is for Chinese capital or the Chinese elites. And so this, the, state, the state went on that economic nationalism. And what was that impact of economic nationalism? Because it wasn't just Tun Raza, it was also Tun Hussein On, um, who focused on economic nationalism. What is the political economic impact? It could either be positive or negative. On the whole, the numbers bear out that it was a positive picture mm-hmm. because less and less of the surplus was being sent abroad and more of it was being reinvested back home. Um, this would continue until the recession of 85. So moving on to the 80s, you talked about how the state failed to develop a Malay industrial bourgeoisie that could compete at an international level. Mm. How did they fail and how did it impact our political economy? It impacted our political economy primarily because we weren't able to join the ranks. Uh, At least this is how the conventional literature plays it out. We weren't able to join the ranks of like the Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan and Hong Kong. These were seen as the people who wrote the coattails of Japan, you know, the, the, their development, the East Asian development model. We were set to join them in that club, mm-hmm. um, but we were not able to, and there are conflicting explanations as to why. I think I don't even offer that in the paper because uh, there are a few ways to kind of explain this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just try to make this quick. There's a certain theory that uh, the reason all these economies were able to grow so quickly, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, was because they were all dictatorships. The government was not beholden to the capitalist class in any way. So if a capitalist screws up, uh, is caught up in corruption, can just jail them. I don't know if you want to kill them, but <laughs> yeah. Right. They, they, you, know, you, can, um, you can punish them. In South Korea and Taiwan, they were ruled by uh, a one-man... Uh, mm-hmm. Presidency. There was no. There were no elections. Right. Freedom of speech was suppressed, and so these countries basically could you could do virtually. I mean, the president could do virtually anything. Singapore, most people would not disagree with me. Is less open than Malaysia. Right. Malaysia, you might lose the UMNO presidency, mm-hmm. even if even if the election is a guaranteed win. 
someone could still lose an UMNO presidency. You know, the dictators of uh, Taiwan and South Korea at the time could not lose an election because there were no elections, mm -hmm. not even for the party. And so the, uh, a certain theory of East Asian development goes is that you need dictatorships to be able to carry out this model and be able to punish capitalists. I'm not a fan of this theory, but this, is the, this, this comes close to an explanation because in Malaysia, the way the patronage systems are set up, it's intermingling with the state and politics. Um, basically, you know, if you allow a GLC to go bankrupt, mm -hmm. there's a politician that, that's affected. If you fire a politician, a GLC is affected. It's intermingled in that way. And therefore, this dependence is the reason that you don't have an independent hmm. bourgeoisie. They are not divorced from the system in a way that is necessary for their economic base to be built, completely sort of insulated from politics. Jeremy, Malaysia's history has always been capitalist and the left-wing forces were soundly defeated, right? But even within that framework, right, of a framework of a global capitalist system, there is a difference between state-driven accumulation of capital and privatization, financialization, in other words, neoliberalism. Mm. Could you contextualize this? The, the reason it is important to highlight the difference is that, in pri I mean, obviously, if you privatize an industry, it is not able to be accountable to people through the state. It's not the, the, the mechanisms don't exist. Right. Elected, elected representatives cannot then, through parliament or through the cabinet, then voice their concerns about what, uh, what a certain company is doing. Because functionally, these industries that were privatized just continued to do what they did. I don't mm -hmm. think they did anything differently. And worst of all, they didn't innovate. So I actually want to return back to that in, in industrial bourgeoisie right. point. Um, is that because uh, the intermingling of politics and economics was so close and there was this dependence, it meant that capital accumulation was easier. Mm -hmm. You know, they went into safe industries. This, maybe you can read other writings I have on this, but basically they didn't go into stuff that were risky. Mm -hmm. um, what, uh, what they've noted about the East Asian development was that things like steel, Steel is a risky venture because you spend like billions and billions and you're not sure if the steel is going to be any good or have a market. Right. But you need to take that risk because that is a necessary step in a phase before you get to cars. Um, and so because uh, the economic and political elite were so close, they could, they could rely on each other to develop safe industries. I mean, safe industries are things like, you know, hospitality, retail, uh, plantations, Construction is the best. Mm -hmm. Construction is the best because there are so many avenues for patronage. Um, so these industries were safe because everybody needs a home. And so the significance of the lack of the independent industrial bourgeoisie is also the fact that they, the state in tried to push for, for them to move up the technological ladder, but they had so many outlets. They could have chosen to just take on easier industries because it would just make money so much quicker and so much more easily without risk. That's where it very easily slipped into privatization later because the failure had already happened. Um, I'm going to try and return mm -hmm. to this transition uh, because after 85, it, it felt like the government basically gave up on a lot of these heavy industries. So right. chemicals and like Pawaja steel, a lot of steel, like Mahathir had pushed for this between 
1980 to 85. After the recession, it was all right. We'll just go into privatization. We'll create this Malay Malay millionaire. So they've given up on this uh, industrial bourgeoisie because I think they just didn't bear the fruits that they thought it would. And it, it must have ruffled so many feathers because at the time he was fighting Razale for, you know, um, for the Amno presidency right. and all of that. So it... In that sense, politics and economics was so interconnected in a way that it disrupted so much of what scholars say should have happened in the standard development of a capitalist society. What has been the lasting impact of neoliberalism? One, it has uh, depleted state income. I mean, through taxes, if you privatise more and more of these, you, rather than getting the whole lot of the income from a GLC, you've privatised this GLC into private hands, maybe you get only 25% back. What that does is it shrinks the capacity of a state because it doesn't have enough money to do all of its social services. Even corporate taxes reduced significantly since the neoliberal era, right? Yes. It was like 40-something percent in the 70s, yeah. and then now it's like what you say, 20-something percent. Yeah, so as, as taxes shrink, the state capacity shrinks. Now people use private healthcare, private education, uh, because the deteriorating quality of public healthcare and public education is going around. And that is a direct result of neoliberalism. That's the most kind of immediate effect that people feel. Um, and on the whole, what's interesting is that politics then morphs along with it. You know, mm -hmm. different politicians will have different relationships with these uh, new tycoons that have emerged from privatization. Um, and I don't think I'm sh I should name names, but people can go and look up mm -hmm. uh, who <laughs> you know <laughs> who who these who these people might be because uh, they are aligned with different political parties now that you right. know uh, contest with each other. Every time there's an economic crisis, every time the pie shrinks, every time there needs to be a fight over who to save and who to leave by the roadside, it results in crises in Amno. So after the '85 recession. The Mahathir Razali fight went down. After the Asian financial crisis, the Mahathir Anwar fight went down. 2008, Badawi uh, versus Najib. Um, there are some anomalies later down the road, but this, this convergence of economic and political crisis is not an unimportant one because we have landed in a situation where it is this state-dependent capitalism. It is a capitalism in which tycoons or, or capitalists are wedded to a certain politician to some extent and they operate the system in which the, the entire country's economy you know, functions. And because of that interplay, we have, we have this kind of political turmoil that has economic results. Mm. It's not just an election gone wrong. Somebody, somebody lost plenty of contracts or lost, you know, their, or lost access. Uh, just a quick example that I don't think Anwar will be upset at. When he was fired from Amno lots of people affiliated with Anwar all got booted out. But that's, that's kind of how the system has been played for such a long time. Talk to me about the rise of conglomerate capital because I think <laughs> that is also a sort of um, interesting thing that happened over the past 40 years or so. Yeah, so that, that, really, that, really, that really ties back into your, to your asking about privatisation mm -hmm. because we've had uh, big ones. These conglomerate formations were... Uh, pretty interesting ones because a lot of them had sort of state-sponsored industries. Um, plenty of them were in what I call safe industries, mm -hmm. uh, gaming, um, telecommunications, um, plantations. And this became the more favoured form of uh, corporation because, you know, generally, if let's say you have 12 different businesses 
um, these four years, healthcare has been losing money, but at least plantations are up. You might be net positive, right? So it seemed like a more, it seemed like a more sort of calculated way to go about capital accumulation, um, and these became very powerful players because of this. Even though Mahate is long gone, this these conglomerate forms stay with us, and they have, and they are, you know, they are veto they are veto players in the system. They have such large amounts of capital that they kind of can make or break a bank because a bank might not have that many corporations to lend to, but these big players constantly go to banks for loans to redevelop, to reinvest in their business. So these uh, players, aside from banks themselves, have become far too important in our system. They've become a monopoly of sorts. I also want to talk about Najib Raza. Now, <laughs> there is no contesting that the former Prime Minister Najib Raza is incredibly corrupt and deserves to spend the rest of his life in jail. But I'm wondering, putting that aside just for the purposes of this discussion, <laughs> I'm wondering if he did take some steps in the right or left direction <laughs> from a political economic perspective. I would say yes and no. I am not opposed to nationalisation. And I think I joined some academics, uh, or a certain academic I'm thinking about on this, where I think that national GLCs can serve some good. And so recently, Anwar said that, you know, GLCs should do more. I agree with that 100%. Because I think, you know, if it's a national industry, it should serve a national or social function. Mm-hmm. Um, I would prefer them to not make as much money. If they potentially could make 10%, I would prefer they make 2% and employ 50% more people. Right. Because that would, you know, that, that has potentially positive social effects. Um, and so when he went about the GLC push, if you look uh, at the, um, I think, investment numbers, this, this certain figure that economists use, gross fixed capital formation, you see it was, on the, it was heading down in the late 2000s, especially after the financial crisis, and then it started to go back up. Mm-hmm. That, most economists explain as the rise of GLCs, the, uh, the Najib era GLCs. Basically, the state started to invest more into the economy because these, these GLCs were growing bigger and bigger. And that hopefully meant that more people got employed, people were getting better wages, people were able to create economic activity and therefore hopefully more prosperity. So I think for me, that was a, that was a positive move. Why I say no is because it didn't then serve this social function. He didn't go about asking them to make less profit and employ more people. And that's a missed opportunity. But you know, I'm, I'm going to say now, I didn't expect him to do that anyway. Right, absolutely. Uh, he, he, these people were born uh, in the neoliberal era with Mahathir in the driver's seat and they continue to believe that. When we look at the 2018 elections, what did we change and more importantly, what didn't we change? I mean, what did we change was obviously uh, pretty important because, you know, I think uh, people had a renewed stance that their freedom of expression uh, had had more room. People had a sense that, you know, at the very least, there could be accountability, you know, because in the sense that, you know, if your government performs poorly, if you're a Barisan national and you keep getting re-elected, there's no way to punish you. Right. And so now people have a sense that, you know, elections could change change things in the past where people didn't. I think what... What we didn't change is, I think, the economic system. Uh, the paper itself stops at 2018, and mm-hmm. so many of my studies have to stop at 2018 right. because I think the verdict on 2018 is not clear. 
a lot of people tried to read the tea leaves. They were like, oh, this, this certain politician is more free market, less free market. Like we attempted to see the person in the ministry and be like, all right, this government is neoliberal. This government right. is socialist. This government is this or that. Right. But the government was so incoherent. You couldn't take one politician saying, like the, this politician would say a free market thing and the next minute they would go in the totally opposite direction, maybe a month later. Um, and obviously we've had changes of government since. I would say upfront that I don't know, like up till today, I really cannot give you like a one pager on what Prekata National's economic kind of <laughs> agenda was. Right. Yeah, you know, you know, um, theorists would be very confused as to like, <laughs> what are they doing, you know? I mean, you could describe them as populist, but it doesn't. It's not coherent in the way that we think of coherence. Uh, the British sort of set the tone for politics for years after they left. Everything would be battled out on racial lines. Mm -hmm. They they set that tone. If it wasn't for them, the 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 basically the chessboard would be very different. And because that's the case. Parties are cross-class alliances. They, you know, you have people who are middle-class uh, workers and uh, farmers. You have people who are capitalists, who are uh, feudal elites. They are all in the same party. Uh, obviously, who leads them still lean heavy to the top. At certain points of social upheaval, because of the Industrial Revolution in the West, um, and that happens sim happening simultaneously with their transition to capitalism, basically from feudalism to capitalism. People tended, people had a greater tendency to gather within their class and struggle against other classes. That just didn't happen here, um, and that's why you know um, the public-facing policies of parties are, um, are, are a jumbled mess. You can't quite tell what they're really after. But obviously, elites still pursue their interests behind closed doors. Mm. That's why there is there could very much be a disjuncture between what you see publicly and privately. But I want to get back to what we didn't change. What we didn't change are a lot of these formations, mm -hmm. the GLCs and the conglomerates. Those mm. still remain in play. Those are untouched, uh, despite some earlier moves about a certain tycoon who controls rice. Um, there have been no moves really in that direction. Mm -hmm. The recent allegations against uh, a certain former Mahathir associate also doesn't rock the boat to an extent of a restructuring. So how would you describe the relationship between the state and various classes in Malaysia today? Ah, that's, that's as complicated as what I've described mm -hmm. about the parties because it's such, those are such cross-class alliances, right? right? Um, to say that uh, a country like Malaysia favours corporations more than people is true, but is not more true than in other places mm -hmm. where their politicians are wholesale lock, stock and barrel bought by corporations. Right. Um, and this happens in Western countries to like, I mean, you can think about America where lobby groups spend billions and billions on politicians. Or you could think about poorer nations where, you know, if you happen to be, I mean, you happen to be the best friend of a politician, you might be the only person to be able to import the entire country's oil or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so it happens on both those fronts. But in Malaysia, you see some type of responsiveness. And this is, <laughs> this is an unfortunate kind of um, situation to be in, but I prefer this than absolutely nothing because in, in countries like Thailand, they get nothing, is that even these small forms of patronage can be responsive. 
if you are someone starving and the politician wants you to vote, you're at least going to be fed because he wants you to vote, right? This is not a perfect scenario. It's hardly good. Mm -hmm. But that means that there are fewer people starving as a result of this system. People underestimate how responsive patronage systems can be. This is not a perfect system, but this is the system that has been built out of these failed experiments at economic nationalism. It's intertwining with politics that should never have happened in that way. Um, but we are not the only society struggling with this. If you go to South Africa today, you will hear about the corruption right. and the patronage of the African National mm -hmm. Congress. You know, people think about Nelson Mandela. Should go and find out what they're doing there in South Africa right now Absolutely. in his name. Um, development in this way is complex. You can never separate politics from economics. And that's, that's, how, that's what I try and describe here. Yeah. So the title of your paper is Malaysia's Incomplete Revolution and you're talking about the capitalist revolution or more specifically Malaysia's shift towards a more cohesive um, ca uh, form of capitalism. Um, first question, are we moving towards completing that? And secondly, and I guess more importantly, how do we build stronger working class movements and push towards a democratic um, left-wing or, or socialist um, type of um, construction um, where the 99% um, of the population have concrete political powers, um, unlike now where it is very much dictated from the top down, where the 1%, the richest people, the ultra-wealthy um, you know, the big conglomerates, so on and so forth, corporations, they have more political power than the average person. The example that resonates with people is that why doesn't Malaysia have a Samsung, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. And that, that for them becomes a valid question because, you know, like Saim Dhabi isn't spending money on AI because AI is risky, could lose mm -hmm. tons and tons of money. It's implantations. Even as you try to like kind of incubate capitalists within the state or state GLCs, it's it's not taken off. And so without this independent capitalist class, you you contend with a lesser capitalism. A capitalism that is far less dynamic, that sticks to these sectors and is heavily reliant on foreign capital to some extent, because we rely fairly heavily on like foreigners investing in even GLCs, you can go and look at investment. Um, certain GLCs have foreign foreign owners on them also, a certain portion of shares. It's reliant on foreign capital and foreign labour to a large extent. So many of those safe sectors require cheap foreign labour, otherwise they don't move, or to some extent suppressed cheap local labour. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the um, I doubt too many of those retail jobs pay a ton. Then they're not they're not being paid the wages of engineers, mm -hmm. of managers. They are being kept there because these safe sectors are preserved alongside the need for foreign labor. And so the capitalist revolution leaves us with this. And I'm not going to sit here and advocate for a capitalist right. revolution. That would not that would not necessarily be to the benefit of workers completely. Mm -hmm. um, if we are looking for something that I could advocate for it is closer to that social revolution where we make or we, with the ballot box, are, uh, force GLCs to create employment, to do 
uh, social good, to nationalize more industries, to be able to generate that employment that we need. Mm -hmm. I don't think people would prefer a generation upon generation of people to continue to drive grab. It's not going to be good for anyone's careers mm -hmm. and their kids. You know, so ultimately, I think um, that social revolution is how we could build that class-conscious society. A lot of these jobs are alienating. Um, a lot of these jobs mean we don't work alongside each other, especially gig work. Mm -hmm. If the government did better to create these slightly more structured manufacturing jobs, you could breathe life back into much of society. Effectively, there are sections of Malaysia that have been deindustrialized. Uh, because of the shift to urban spaces or basically depopulated, right? So the government could repopulate a lot of these spaces with young people again if they went about, you know, uh, um, effectively a Malaysian New Deal mm -hmm. where jobs would be created, new social institutions could be created, communities could be revived in these spaces or people be, you know, people be enticed to go back to these spaces to rebuild those economies. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was Jeremy Lim, Secretary of Imagined Malaysia. This conversation is also available on podcast. You can find us on Spotify, the BFM app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple, do subscribe to us, drop us a review. I would really, really appreciate it. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.